Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we thank you for laughter. We thank you for glitches in software and uh, misprints on Bible readings and all the things that remind us as if we needed reminders that we are fallible, flawed people, which makes us all the more grateful for our sinless Savior who died for us. So Lord, we readily admit that we are flawed, we are sinful, we are selfish. Every day we fail to do things that we should, we do things that we shouldn't, our motives are impure, our tendency is inward and selfward, and yet you love us anyway. You set your affections on us, and you demonstrated your great love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So thank you for that good news of a gospel of grace, and for your continued grace in our lives that overlooks uh, offenses because Christ paid for them and that restores us and reconciles us as soon as we confess and return to you. So we thank you for this time that we had to praise you, to pray to you, and now we pray that your spirit that inspired your scripture will open our minds to understand it, our hearts to embrace it, our wills to obey it. Be with us now, we ask in your son's name. Amen. Well, a couple of years ago, my daughter and I returned home on an evening and found my wife and son sitting on the couch crying. And the blue glow on their faces let me know that they were watching a movie. So Rachel and I sat down and joined them and they were watching something called Hachi. Now, if you don't know, I hear some sighs, but if you don't know the 2010 film, it is about a Tokyo professor who finds a little Akita puppy whose legs were crooked and it reminded him of the shape of the Japanese number eight, which in Japanese is Hachiko. And so he named it Hachiko or Hachi. And this little dog would accompany him to the train station when he went to his commute. And then every afternoon, the dog would be waiting there for him when he returned. And the dog had the timetable down. Except one day, master and dog went to the station and the dog came back in the afternoon to wait for him. And the master never came back because he died of a brain hemorrhage unexpectedly. And so the dog waited, and then he came back the next day. And days became weeks, became months, became years. For more than nine years, this dog waited at his post for his master's return. Now he became a fixed figure there, and some commuters just brushed past him, he was in the way, but others recognizing his loyalty, his commitment, his allegiance, began feeding him, began caring for him. And then when he died, they put a statue of Hachi at his post and of him grieving his master. And they preserved his body, a little bit more of it, but in the Natural Science Museum in Japan, uh, they found an old recording that someone had made of his bark and it became a national display of hearing Hachi's bark. And on March 8th, there is a solemn memorial ceremony commemorating this dog more than a hundred years ago because we respect loyalty. We admire allegiance. We appreciate a love that takes priority over all distractions, a commitment that per perseveres through hard times and long waits. And these are the themes that Jesus is going to bring up in our text today. And so if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 10. Now, Matthew records five long addresses of Jesus. They're called discourses. The first was the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 through 7. 
Today we conclude the second major discourse of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, which were his address to his apostles as he sends them out on their first short-term mission trip. And he's giving them instructions on what they are to do along the way. He's warning them about the opposition that they can face. And now he concludes with a closing charge that's going to emphasize the faithful confessions that we are called to make the expected divisions that will occur for those who commit themselves to Christ. The love that is worthy because it places Christ above all other loves. And then the rewarding support that we can anticipate and the way that the king honors those who honor his servants. Let's look at 32 and 33. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Now the therefore at the start of 32 tells us to go back into the text and see what that therefore is there for. Uh, is the bad homiletic or hermeneutical pun. But in 28 and following it says, Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. The very hairs of your head are numbered. So do not fear, for you are worth more, far more to them. So Christ's followers should fear God, not the persecutors who hate God, because they can only touch our body. God preserves our soul. What the persecutors should fear is a God who can cast both body and soul into hell. But we are told in light of this fact of a God who loves us, He knows every sparrow that falls, he knows everything that goes on, and he not only knows, he's sovereign over all these things. So he knows when we are subjected to persecution. He knows when our lives are in danger. He knows when we are jeopardized and fearful. But he's there, and he cares, and he is sovereign over those moments. So we don't fear, and we continue to confess Jesus. Like Polycarp, whom we mentioned last week, this 86-year-old man who was dragged into the arena of people calling for his blood, and he's called to renounce Christ, to curse Christ, and he says, six and 80 years have I served my king and he's never done me wrong. How can I now dishonor him who's been so faithful to me? And they threatened him with lions and with fire and he died faithful to the end. Around that same time, uh, a couple of ladies known as Perpetua and Felicity were arrested shortly after their baptisms. One was a noble woman, another a slave woman uh, in late term pregnancy. They were arrested, they were tortured, they were threatened with wild animals if they didn't recant Christ. They allowed the pregnant woman to deliver her child. And then they brought both women into an arena and they fed them to the lions to the entertainment of the crowds calling for their blood. But they wouldn't renounce Christ. They endured to the end. They've gone down ever since as faithful examples of even young believers, these ladies who were willing to stand up against the jeering crowds and to face the tearing lions because they wouldn't deny their Lord. Uh, a few centuries later, there were 40 Roman soldiers in modern-day Turkey who were told to renounce Christ as persecutions <laughs> began to rise under a new emperor. And when they refused, they stripped them and sent them out onto a frozen lake. And then they warmed large baths of water on the shoreline to tempt them to come in and get warm. And in the middle of the night, one of the soldiers, finally just shaking with cold, gave in. And he marched off the ice and he got into the hot bath of water. 
but one of the Roman shoulders on the Soline, so compelled by the example of these witnesses who would not renounce their faith, took off his armor, took off his garments, went out on the ice and replaced him. And he replaced their faithful member. And the example of these martyrs for Christ have continued through the centuries. And if you've ever read Eusebius' Church History or Fox's Book of Martyrs, and of course today there are an estimated 70 countries where there is open, governmental, or public allowed persecution of Christians. That means approximately 350 of our brothers and sisters in Christ could not meet in an assembly this large or sing this loud or have sermons amplified because it would be dangerous to do so. And they're faithful and they confess Christ and they don't deny. And these should be inspiring examples that if they can do that in those contexts, then we can stand up against mocking peers, against hateful media, against biased employers or professors, against mocking crowds, and we are called to confess Christ, but it's hard. And so Christ gives us two motivations, one positive, one negative, to help us do it. The positive one is that if we confess Christ, He will confess us. Everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. Now in the earlier verses, He said, as you go out as my messengers, you should expect to be turned over to the synagogues, turned over to the local councils. You may stand before governors and kings you can expect to be tried for your faith. And they're going to ask you to recant and renounce and to cry your Savior. But if you don't, if you stay true, that on the day of judgment at the grand tribunal, at the great reckoning, then I will confess you as well. And when the Father comes and all the books are opened and the nations are assembled before Him, the Christ will proudly say, that's one of mine. That, that's one of mine. He confessed me, I confess him. He claimed me, I claim her. And so we need to be willing to stand up for our faith. And there's also a negative reinforcement as well. Whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Now, these are sobering words that we can't dilute or dismiss, but we also need to take in context with the rest of Scripture. Jesus says, if you deny me before men, then I will deny you before my Father in heaven. So what about those who in a moment of weakness did hide their faith, did deny Christ, did go along with the mob, did something in a moment of weakness that they regretted? But who is the most famous denier of Christ of all in Scripture? Peter. Three times, right? And not before an arena and a procurator and animals. Before whom? A little slave girl. <laughs> Three times he denied him. But when Jesus saw him again, did he deny Peter? What did he do? He restored him. He restored him. And for 30 years, Peter, Peter ministered faithfully for Christ. And according to church history, gave his life for Christ, crucified like Christ almost. So we have a document outside of the New uh, Testament called the Acts of Peter. And according to this apocryphal document, not scripture, but an historical account according to the period, Peter was in Rome at the time, and Nero was beginning to persecute the Christians, and so at the encouragement of the church, Peter left the city so that he would not be captured and killed. And according to this account, as he's leaving the city on the Appian Way, he sees Jesus passing him, walking into the city. And Peter says, Domine quo vadis? which is Latin for, Lord, where are you going? 
And Jesus says, I'm going into the city to be crucified again because Peter wouldn't be crucified for him. And Peter felt ashamed and turned around and went into the city. And what we have on probably better historical basis is that when he was crucified for his faith, Paul being a Roman citizen was beheaded, Peter being a Jew was crucified, but he requested, and according to history, the request was granted to be crucified upside down because he didn't consider worthy to be martyred in the same manner as his Lord. Peter denied, but Jesus restored, and he died faithful. Uh, an historical example of this is Thomas Cranmer, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury under King Henry VIII. He's the author of the Book of Common Prayer, if you're Episcopal, Anglican, or just appreciate that beautiful document. And King Henry VIII died, it was replaced by a son, it was replaced by a daughter, and it was replaced, or actually it was replaced by Mary, known as Bloody Mary, because when she tried to restore Catholicism in England, she burnt many Protestant leaders alive at Smithfield. And Thomas Cranmer was brought in and under duress recanted his Protestant convictions, but then regretted his weakness. And so he recanted his recantation and he was sentenced to be burned alive. And as he was tied to the stake and as the flames began to rise, he took his right hand and he thrust it first into the flames and he said, this was the hand that offended. <laughs> this, this is what I signed my recantation with, and I regret it. And he put that first in the flames. We're all weak, and none of us know what we would do in that moment. But we can repent, and we can return, and there is forgiveness. But for those who deny Christ to the end, those who apostatize and never turn back, the expectation is if they deny Jesus to the end, he will deny them in the end. It's a somber warning. Jesus next goes to tell us that we should expect conflict and contentions in our relationships because of him. Look at verses 34 through 36. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. Now this is another passage that we need to read in context with the rest of Scripture. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He is coming to restore a new heavens and a new earth when everyone will flourish and everything will thrive. And then there will only be righteousness and peace because God's shalom will be established at last because God's king will be established at last. And until then, Jesus came to bring peace to those whom God favored. And there is peace that he gives to his disciples, he says in John 14. So there is this momentary experience of God's, but it's not holistic yet. But it's also true right now that when Christ comes and calls someone to himself and that commitment is rejected by those families, that they should expect dissension and they should expect division. And there's going to be parents who disown children. And there's going to be children who are in conflict with their parents. And there's going to be friends that lose friendships and there's going to be employees that lose jobs, and there's going to be people who are put aside from the old relationships because of this new loyalty that they have established. And we should expect that. It comes with the territory. Um, this last week was Denton Bible's missions conference, and missionaries came from around the world to come and be encouraged and to share what God is doing in their midst. And I took Mel Summerall, the founder of that program, to go and meet many of the missionaries and to hold court with some of his disciples. And there in that room were people ministering to the Muslim world. 
And there are people there and a couple here who minister in the Asian context that it's illegal to be Christian. And there are people there in countries where Christian is a minuscule minority. And if someone comes and gives his life to Christ, it's not accepted by the family, by the peers, by society, by the culture, by the government sometimes. And we should expect that. It just comes when you make this commitment to Christ that those who hate Christ are going to hate you because of it. That when we give ourselves to God, those who reject God are likely going to reject us as well. It just comes with it. But we have to make a commitment. There's times that we're called to make a stance. Do you remember when Israel was on the uh, border of the Jordan River? And they were about to cross over to take control of the promised land. And Joshua sent two spies into Jericho to see the fortifications. And then people found out about the presence. And there was Rahab, this woman. And Rahab had to make a choice. I can turn the spies over who have taken shelter in my home. And then I'll get the applaud of my city and maybe some gold from the government. And I'll get approval from my peers. But what did Rahab do? She hid them. And then she misled those who were coming after them. And they said, because you have established your allegiance to us in a hostile context, when we come, we will preserve you and all in your household. But we need a visible display, a public statement in a sense of this new allegiance that you've established. And so outside of her window, she hung a scarlet cord. And when the army crossed the Jordan and the city fell and they rushed in, that portion of the walled homes was preserved. And the family within that was secure because they had established their allegiance with God's people and with Joshua, the Hebrew form of Jesus, Yeshua. She had made her allegiance known. She had established her loyalties, even in a hostile context, so that when the king came, he honored that loyalty. And we're called to do the same as well. Here in America, we are still surrounded by many Christians, but again, many of our brothers and sisters are not. But when we commit ourselves to Christ, we should expect that there'll be divisions. We don't desire them, we don't encourage them, but our allegiance is going to put us at odds that those who reject our Lord. Look at verses 37 through 39. The reality of that can't cause us to compromise our convictions though. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Now, don't miss the astonishing claim that Jesus makes here. Jesus, the Jewish carpenter, born in obscurity in Bethlehem, raised in obscurity in Nazareth, says... I deserve more of your love than your parents. I deserve to have more of your love than your children. I desire and deserve for you to love me over your own life. Because when he says, take up your cross and follow me, in that context, the Jews would have known that when a Jew was sentenced to be crucified, he bore the instrument of his execution on his back up to the place that he would be crucified. So Jesus says, if you were to be worthy of my love, then you need to love me more than your family, more than your peers, more than your friends, more than your life. Only God can make that claim. Only God can say, love me wholeheartedly with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love me more than anything else because I'm worthy of more than anything else. And I've done more for you than anyone else. That no one is as lovely and loving as God, but Jesus is God. 
And so he says, you will have other loves, you will have other loyalties, but I come first. I am the ultimate allegiance. I am the highest love. I am the supreme affection because he is our creator. He is our redeemer. He is our Lord. And he claims his rightful place as first in our affections. And when we do that, all of our other loves get properly prioritized and we can love other people and things safely and rightly. There's a beautiful example of this in a poem that the pastor John Piper wrote for his son for his marriage. And as his son, I think, asked his dad to write him a poem as part of the wedding ceremony, and Piper did so. And this is a poem called Love Her More and Love Her Less. I want to read you a portion of it. Here is a portion of the stream, my son, a sermon poem. Its theme, a double rule of love that shocks, a doctrine in paradox. If you now aim your wife to bless, then love her more and love her less. If in the coming years, by some strange providence of God, you come to have the riches of this age and painless stride across the stage, beside your wife, be sure in health to love her, love her more than wealth. And if your life is woven in a hundred friendships and you spin a festal fabric out of all your sweet affections, great and small, be sure, no matter how it rends, to love her, love her more than friends. And if there comes a point when you are tired and pity whispers, do yourself a favor, come be free, embrace the comforts here with me. Know this, your wife surpasses these, so love her, love her more than ease. And when your marriage bed is pure and there is not the slightest lure of lust for any but your wife and all is ecstasy in life, a secret all of this protects, love her, love her more than sex. And if your taste becomes refined, and if you are moved by what the mind of man can make, and dazzled by his craft, remember that the why of all this work is in the heart. So love her, love her more than art. And if your own should someday be the craft that critics all agree, in worthy of a great esteem, and sales exceeds your wildest dream, beware the dangers of a name, and love her, love her more than fame. And if to your surprise, not mine, God calls you by some strange design to risk your life for some great cause, let neither fear nor love give pause. And when you face the gate of death, love her, love her more than breath. Yes, love her, love her more than life. Oh, love the woman called your wife. Go love her as your earthly best. Be it beyond this venture not, but lest your love become a fool's facade, be sure to love her less than God. It is not wise or kind to call an idol by sweet names and fall, as in humility before a likeness of your God, a door above your best, beloved on earth, the God alone who gives her worth. And she will know in second place that your great love is also grace, and that your high affections now are flowing freely from a vow beneath these promises first made to you by God, nor will they fade, for being rooted by the stream of heaven's joy which you esteem and cherish more than breath and life, that you may give it to your wife. The greatest gift you give your wife is loving God above her life. And thus I bid you now to bless, go love her more by loving less. There's a lot of things that call for our loves. There are a lot of things that are worthy of our loves, but we must prioritize our affections and our loyalties. It's okay for a man to love his work, but not more than his family. 
It's okay for a wife to love her home, but not more than her husband. It's okay for children to love their friends, but not more than their parents. And our ultimate allegiance belongs exclusively to God. We love Him more than all else. And when we do, all the rest of our affections and loyalties can fall into proper alignment. And the paragraph ends with another paradox. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Those who think that they're finding life by pursuing it somewhere outside of God will ultimately realize that they missed the best of life when they abandoned God to pursue what only this life offers. They, they sold their highest dreams for small desires. Or if someone thinks that they can extend their life by denying Christ and sparing themselves the persecution might come, they're ultimately going to lose their life. But those who renounce their life and give it back to God, then they realize the full and abundant life that God intends for us. And those who may be called upon to give their life for God, then they will realize the life eternal that God intends for them and the rewards that he establishes for those that follow him above all else. When we give all that we have to God, God gives us everything else. When we reject God to try to cling to the things of this world or to extend the life in the midst of persecution, we lose the best of life that it has to offer. And for some may forfeit the eternal life that's promised if we reject Christ. C.S. Lewis said that those who seek this world lose God and the next, but those who seek God and the next get this world thrown in. But we have to get our priorities straight and we have to be willing to follow it to the end where God leads us. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer is a German theologian who wrote, most, he's most famous for his book, The Cost of Discipleship. And he pastored an underground sermon, uh, seminary during the time of the Nazi regime. And then he worked with outside organizations to help Jews escape Germany. But as the persecution was beginning to grow and his own life became threatened, his friends encouraged him to flee Germany while there was still time and come to America. And they made a place for him at Union Seminary in New York. And Bonhoeffer agreed, but on the boat across the Atlantic, regretted his decision. And once he got over there, he immediately made arrangements to return to Germany. And when his confused friend said, why would you go back and jeopardize your life? Why would you go back there? You can make a greater, longer contribution for God here safe in America. And Bonhoeffer replied, if I do not suffer with my people during this time of national crisis, then I will have nothing to say to my people when the crisis ends. If I don't suffer with them in the midst of it, I'll have nothing to say to them on the other side of it. And so we went back to Germany and he was arrested and he was imprisoned. And on April 9th, 1945, he was summoned to the gallows of Flossenburg prison and he was hung to death at the age of 39. The BBC held a memorial service and his parents learned about his death through a radio broadcast coming from England. And when he was there in the cell with some other prisoners, he would hold devotions for them. Uh, the guards came in and summoned prisoner Bonhoeffer and his final words as he left the cell, recorded by someone in the room, were, this is the end, but for me, the beginning of life. He didn't lose his life. He lived it for God. He lived it for Christ. They hung him on a gallows, and he entered into life eternal. He entered into bliss immeasurable. So we can lose our life for God and still truly find it. And there is another encouragement that Jesus offers in the last three verses of this passage. 
He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. There's an encouragement here both to the emissaries that Christ is sending out as well as to those of us whom God may send them. And namely, that first of all, when we receive someone sent by Jesus, we receive Jesus. And when we receive Jesus, we receive God who sent him. So God sent Jesus. Jesus sends messengers. When we receive those messengers, we receive Jesus. We receive God. We can enter into an eternal relationship with Jesus Christ if we will receive the message when it comes. If we will embrace the messengers when they arrive. What an amazing thing. But there is also hope here that for those who receive a prophet a spokesman for God, a messenger of God, someone coming with God's words to an individual or to a people, and we bless them when we receive them just because they are a messenger of God, when we honor the king by honoring his emissary, when we honor the president by honoring his ambassador, God says they will be rewarded. They will be blessed. Uh, there's a famous example of this in 1 Kings 4 when a woman from the town of Shunim began to notice that there was the prophet Elijah who would often pass by their home. And so she would begin to pray a meal for him. We don't know her name, but she lives forever in scripture because of the way she wanted to bless God's servant. Here's First Kings, or I'm sorry, 2 Kings 4, 9 through 10. The woman said to her husband, Behold now, I perceive that this is a holy man of God passing by us continually. Please, let us make a little walled upper chamber. Let us set a bed for him there, and a table, and a chair, and a lampstand. And it shall be, when he comes to us, that he can turn in there. Here's a humble man of God. We've been feeding him, but we could do something more. We could set aside a room with a cot and a desk and a lampstand so that he could sleep and study and prepare. Let's do that. Let's take a part of what God's given us and reserve it for this man of God. And if you know your Old Testament, remember what God did for her? He gave her her heart's desire. He gave her a son. Now, Matthew Henry, the old English commentator, says that there's a word of warning here for ministers as well. But you ministers, it was only a bed and only a desk and only a lampstand. It wasn't a Tesla. It wasn't a lake home. It wasn't a jacuzzi. But there is this rightness in this is a spokesperson for God. And I'm going to honor them just for that reason. And we have here, even here visiting us today, some missionaries who have left their life in America, left their homes in America, and gone all the way across the other side of the world, learned another language to simply let people know about the good news of Jesus Christ and to rein up pastors who could help have healthier churches so that they could do God's work in that context. And when we hear that there are missionaries going out for the sake of the name, 3 John says that we should support such a one as those worthy of those who went out for the sake of the name. They are sacrificing much. And we can't all go, but we can support them. And if we do, God says, I'll honor that. Uh, in the Old Testament, there's a couple of instances, one with David, one I think with Samuel, where the soldiers are going to pursuing or they're going into where there's going to be an evasion and there's going to be plunder on the other side. And the soldiers who did the fighting wanted a bigger portion than those who guarded the supplies. 
for those who stayed with the wagons. In both instances, they said no. Those who guarded the wagons will get the same portion as those who went out into battle because they both did their job. They enlisted, they were deployed, this one was assigned this role, this one was assigned this role, they both were faithful in that role, everybody gets an equal share. But we all have a part, and God knows that some are called to go overseas and serve, others are called to support them, and those that support, those that pray, those that encourage, those that help them when they come home with offering rooms and cars and other ways to support them, God sees, God knows, God is pleased, and God blesses. Um, I heard a missions conference that John Piper did when I was in seminary, and he was speaking at Park City's Presbyterian Church, and he said, when it comes to missions, Christians have three options. Go, send, or disobey. Go, send, or disobey. But we all have a part in that, and God sees whatever part we play. Nextly, he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. Now, there's some debate whether righteous man is a synonym for prophet or if this is just referring to a mature disciple, someone who has hunger and thirsted for righteousness, who has sought first God's kingdom and his righteousness. And now this is a mature believer. And when you honor a mature believer just because they are a mature believer, God sees that and honors that. Uh, when Nock and I were early years of marriage, things were pretty lean for a long season because we were both in grad school. And then when God gave us children, she stepped away from work to raise the kids. And I think our first 10 years of vacations were all made possible because people loaned us vacation homes. We didn't have money for hotels. We didn't have money for trips. But people just said, I've got a guest house. I've got a lake house. I've got a beach house. I've got timeshare. And they just blessed us because they knew we were in seminary. They knew that we were going into church work. And they just blessed us because of that. And so many seminarians and so many collegiates and so many people in the early days of their ministry, or for some, their entirety of their ministry, it's tight, it's lean. But when the family of God says, but you're serving our Lord in this special way, and I can give you and your wife a date night, or I can buy your textbooks this semester. And even here in this small young family, we have uh, three students at Criswell Bible College. We have two students at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. We have people in missions organizations. We have those aspiring to do vocational ministry and missions. And right now it's lean because the world doesn't honor that. They're not getting company cars. They're not getting per diems. <laughs> They're not getting big payoffs on the other side to make up for the retirement saving they can't do now. And so when we see them wanting to serve the Lord, we can support them. We can encourage them in various ways. But now we even look one step further into progression. We started with prophets, then we went to righteous men. Now it says, whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. So this is just a disciple, a follower of Christ. And by little one, it doesn't mean they were small in stature. It means immature. They were young in their faith. Uh, when Christ will say that if anyone causes one of these little ones to stumble, that may refer to the young in their faith, those who are just getting started on the Christian life. So this is kind of the beginning of that stage of the long Christian life that may end up in your being a prophet or a vocational minister. And notice what's being offered. It's so small. It's not a house in a room. It's not a forum for a prophet. It's a cup of water. I can turn the right knob, not the left knob, on the tap. Give it to a Christian because they're a Christian. And God says, I saw that. <laughs> I see that. And I'm going to bless you because of that. 
Christians are intended to support and encourage one another. And not just the vocational ministers and not just those who seem to be doing great volunteer works for God. If you help a believer simply because they're a believer, God sees and God will honor that. Uh, as parents, when we see someone doing something kind for our children, what goes on in our heart and mind? Dude, I'm gonna give that guy my car. I'm gonna give that guy. If someone helps our kid, we'll do anything for them. And God says, our Heavenly Father, when I see one of my children helping another one of my children, that warms my heart and I'm gonna bless that. In fact, Jesus is going to tell us that when he comes on judgment day and sits on his throne, surrounded by his angels, the criteria that he will use to evaluate sheep from goats is did this person treat other Christians in a loving way? Listen to these words from Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne, Christ in His kingship. All the nations will be gathered before Him. He will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on His right, the goats on His left, and then the king will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed of my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to see me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them you did it to me. Now, we'll talk more on this when we get to Matthew 25. We're halfway there. But whom is Jesus talking are the ones that he wants to see served? His brothers. Well, he's not talking about his half-brothers. That would make no sense. He's not talking about his Jewish brothers because there's clearly going to be the Gentiles that he's going to bring the gospel to. He's not talking about his fellow brothers in humanity, Father God and Brother Man. That's not the context of the gospel. Do you remember when Jesus is teaching in the house and someone comes and says, uh, Master, you're, behold, your mother, your sisters, your brothers. And what does Jesus say? Who are my sisters, my mother, and my brothers? And he points out at the audience, my disciples. When a disciple of Jesus helps a disciple of Jesus in any small way, they're sick and we help them. They needed clothing and we clothed them. They needed money and we helped. They were in prison for the sake of the gospel, we visited them, even though that might cost us something. When a Christian helps a Christian, it proves that we're a Christian because Christians love one another. When a Christian helps a Christian, it proves that we're a Christian because Christians love one another. Because how will all men know that we are Christ's disciples? If we have love for one another. Well, I can't give a car. I can't give a vacation. You can give a cup of cold water. You can give an encouraging word. You can call, you can text, you can visit. And when God the Father sees his children helping his other children, he says, I saw that. I like that. I'm going to reward that. Chapter 10 is the conclusion of this long address of Jesus to his apostles as he sends them out on his first missionary journey. So there's a context to some of this. 
But there's enduring principles that are true for all disciples in all ages. Four of them. If we faithfully confess Jesus before the world, he will confess us before God. If you claim Christ, Christ will claim you. And if in a moment of weakness we fail to do that, we can repent and we can recant of our recantation like Peter, like Thomas Cranmer. And we can come back, but we need to be loyal to our convictions. Secondly, we should expect our commitment to Christ to create divisions in our relationships. It's not because we're divisive, but Christ is. And if we are going to be true to Christ and His claims and His teaching and His commands, those that don't like those things won't like us either. But that can't intimidate us from staying true to Christ. Thirdly, we must love Jesus more than anyone or anything else because Jesus is worthy of our love more than anyone or anything else. And fourthly, God rewards those who receive and bless His servants. The King is pleased when people Bless his servants in the name of the king. Do what you can. Pray, encourage, support, help, receive. God sees and God reward. Would you pray with me? <coughs> Father, we thank you for the encouragement in this text. Uh, we thank you for Christ coming and offering us the opportunity to commit our lives to him. <coughs> we were not worthy of that invitation, but you sent your son to live and die and rise for us, that if we repent of our sins and embrace Him as our Savior, then we will not perish but have everlasting life. And we thank You that Your faithful Son now sends out messengers to faithfully proclaim that good news. Lord, we thank You that many, if not most of us here, have received that and embraced that. So would You give us courage to claim Christ even in the face of opposition? Would we not deny him because he does not deny us? He is faithful to us even when we are faithful to him. So make us more faithful, we pray. Lord, for those who have gone out for the sake of the name, we thank you for their sacrificial service. And we pray that we would generously and sacrificially serve them and support them because we are all part of the same effort, even though we have different roles in it. And we thank you, Lord, that you see everything. You see the prayers offered in secret. You see those who give in secret. You see those who fast in secret and you see every good name done to a minister, to a Christian volunteer, to the youngest disciple. When someone serves a believer simply because they're a believer, you reward that. So help us to serve and support one another, we ask in your son's name. Amen.